you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. As uh, Michelle just mentioned, we are starting a series uh, for the next couple of weeks called Once Upon a Marriage. And the, the reason for this is, you know, we talk about how February is a season where, where we think about love is in the air and all this stuff. And what I want to caveat in the very beginning is the idea that even if you're not married, even if you uh, have been married or not anymore, even if you are wanting to be married someday and you're not there, Maybe you're in the midst of a marriage where things are great, and maybe you're in the midst of a marriage where things are really tough. No matter where you are in regards to what your relationship is with marriage, my hope and prayer is that as we take the next several weeks looking at different themes from different biblical couples, that all of us will be able to learn a little bit more, yes, about our marriage, perspective or previous or current, as well as getting a better perspective on our relationship with God through the truths that we learn in the scripture over the next few weeks. So um, what I want to start off with is with this coming Wednesday being Valentine's Day, um, and just in case any of you didn't remember that, just know this Wednesday is Valentine's Day. We, um, there was a time several years ago early in our marriage before we had kids where I wanted to surprise Steph on a getaway for Valentine's Day. And so we, we got all packed up and we started driving and we lived in the LA County area at the time. And so we're driving north on the 15 and you know, I didn't tell her where we were going. I just kind of gave an idea of like what we need to wear. You need one like fancier outfit because we're going to go out and um, you'll, you know, we'll want to be dressed up a little bit. But besides that, I'm driving north. And if you've ever driven north on the 15 and you're kind of going, all of a sudden you get to the point where it's like Barstow and you're like, there's not a lot else going on out here. And so we're driving by Barstow, and I'm still not telling her where we're going. And then it's like, oh, honey, I wanted to surprise you because did you know that the world's largest thermometer is in Baker, California? And this is why I brought you here. No. So eventually we start seeing signs, and it says, going to Las Vegas. And it was, we wanted to go see Phantom of the Opera at the Venetian. If, like, the Fan- Phantom of the Opera is like... There was a theater that was specifically designed for it, and so that was a surprise, that we are going to go see a show, get some good food. But it's one of those where I remember being like, oh, you know when you, when you do something really good, you're like, oh, I get, you know, you feel like you get, like, bonus points for being, like, a good, you know, planner or surpriser or whatever it may be. And yet, the truth of the matter is, is that in our culture, when we look at love as like the emotion and as passion is being driven so strongly as, as our emotion when it comes to marriage, then we think that, oh, it's about the big moments that really matter. It's, it's about those surprises. It's about going to Baker, California, not really. It's about these moments that's like, oh, I did a good job and that should last for a long time. And yet, if we do good things in big moments, on big days, but then fail to love in the day-to-day, then we start to look and we realize that the marriage or a relationship cannot be driven just by large, big things. It can't just be driven by a good Valentine's Day plan or date or gift this coming Wednesday. It has to be how do we love one another throughout the year. And again, I recognize that we're all in a different sphere. Some of us, Valentine's Day is an incredibly painful day. It's a difficult day. And so I don't mean to gloss over that, 
But what I do recognize is that when we learn different themes from different biblical couples, it'll help us, yes, in our own marriages. It'll help us to understand God more and his love for us. And hopefully it'll help us to draw closer to him and to become more like him. So we're in a series called Once Upon a Marriage, and it's valuable lessons from biblical couples. And before we jump into our topic this morning, I would ask that you join me in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who is part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later throughout the week. Lord, I, I recognize that as we talk about biblical couples, as we talk about lessons that we can learn through your word, as we talk about and as we think about this time in February where we love seems to be something we see all around, Lord, may we have our eyes to see the kind of love that you've called us for, one that is selfless and puts others first, rather than the love that is all about our emotions and how we feel in any specific moment. Lord, may we remember that loving one another, whether as a spouse or family, and loving you, Lord, is about the will to choose to continue to love even when things are hard, and that it wouldn't just be about the high of the emotion. So Lord, may we draw close to you this morning. I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be looking at the theme of, uh, when we look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, we talk about how God created man and God created woman, and they would be united, and the two would become one flesh. And we hear this idea of when two becomes one, and this, this idea of how that's what marriage is meant to be. And so what I want to take a moment on is we're going to have different topics that look at some of them not great examples of marriage in the Bible, and those themes and how we can apply that to our lives. So the one we're going to talk about today is not when two becomes one, but we're looking at the story of Samson and Delilah and when two remains two. When two remains two, what does that mean? It means that when two people stay separated from God as the center of their lives and when they don't get together and they, and they remain separated in their desires and the way that they see the marriage. It's when two separate individuals don't become one in Christ. It's when they live their own lives. It's a marriage of convenience or passion or whatever it may be. But when two remains two, it doesn't work out. In fact, um, we're going to be looking at a book. We're not, we're not uh, going through it chapter by chapter, but some of the content that is uh, talked about over the next several weeks will come from this book by Doug and B.J. Jensen. If you knew Doug and B.J. Jensen, they came to this church for a couple years, um, and they've been involved um, in Love in Motion Signing Choir, as well as um, speaking at different uh, like grief conferences and things like that. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful couple. And so I talked to them about this, and so they're excited about the series as well. And so the, the actual book that they have is called Famous Lovers in the Bible. Before they moved away uh, a few years ago, they actually donated um, a few boxes of these books to the church. And so um, afterwards, we have enough uh, we have enough books if you guys would like to take one, whether that's one per couple or even both if you want to have your own copy, that that is a free gift uh, from the Jensen's through us to you. But here's the point that I want to land on this morning, this idea of when two becomes two. When two remains two, here's our main point, selfishness wins and both people lose. When two remains two, selfishness wins and both people lose. 
We think that if we keep our independence, we think that if we get what we want and pursue what we want in a marriage or in any relationship, that then we'll get our, need, our needs covered. And we think, well, I have to look after myself. And so then if that is how one person in the couple looks like, and then the other spouse is like, well, then I need to look after myself. And when two remain two, when they remain separated, then both, selfishness wins, which means that both people lose. So we're looking at Judges chapter 16 this morning. We're not going to get through the whole book or chapter, but most of it. Um, and we're looking specifically at the story of Samson and Delilah. And so what I want to do is we're not going to have the, the um, words, that whole verses on the s- screen here, but I would invite you to follow along, whether it's in your Bible that you brought, your Bible app on your phone, or a Bible that's in the seat pockets in front of your seat racks, excuse me, in front of you. Because we're going to learn a few things about Samson and Delilah, uh, several ways in which they have fallen short, and maybe if we're honest with ourselves, some ways that we can see our own story falling short in this as well. Before we jump into the actual Delilah portion, there's this few verses, 16, 1 through 3, that kind of sets the scene for this passage. Now, one thing you need to know is that Samson was someone that was a Nazarite. He, he, before he was born, he was supposed to be set aside. He was not supposed to cut his hair. He was supposed to remain pure and unceremonially clean. He, that's where he got the strength from the spirit of the Lord came upon him because he was set apart by God for God's purposes. And yet we see throughout his life over the previous few chapters that Samson does not follow the call that God has for his life. We get a snippet of it, a little picture of it in the first three verses here this morning. So Judges 16, 1 through 3 say this. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay, lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we will kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Okay, what's happening here? Why is this here? It gives us a snippet of three very quick snapshot items we need to be aware of for Samson as we read this passage this morning. Number one, Samson is physically strong. Physically, he's able to lift up these gates and all the bars and the posts and then walk miles until the, the, the um, hill of Hebron. So this is something where physically he's strong, but spiritually he's weak. He was supposed to be set apart for God's purposes. He was supposed to be a Nazarite, a Nazarite who would um, remove himself from uh, uncleanness. That him going to a foreign place, Gaza and Philistines, him sleeping with a prostitute, None of these would have been things that he ought to have been doing as part of his calling as set apart for God. And we see in the previous few chapters that he eats from a lion's carcass, which again is touching something unclean. It's it's as if he doesn't understand his calling, or it's as if he's taking his calling for granted, thinking that his physical strength, or his strength comes from just physical truth, rather than the fact that he's strong because God had given him that spirit. And so we'll see what happens when he thinks that his strength is just in what he can provide rather than how God has blessed him. So he's physically strong, spiritually weak. And then we see this in the beginning because it emphasizes the hatred that the Philistines have for him. He was already well known by the time chapter 16 is here because once they found out Samson is here, they're like, we're going to surround him and we're going to kill him in the morning. 
And that yet he escapes and he shows his physical strength, his spiritual weakness, but then it signals to us the rest of this chapter and how hated by the Philistine Samson was. So as we get ready to look into this section, we're going to see that Samson was a very passionate person. And by that I mean like he was a very sensuous person, and by that his senses are what drove him. When he first saw a woman that he found attractive a few chapters ago, he tells his parents to get me her for my wife. He, he wants what's sweet now. He, he eats honey out of a carcass because it's about his senses. It's about what he wants. It's not about his spirit and pursuing the spiritual nature. It's about his flesh and allowing that to drive him. And so what happens is, is that we have this idea of passion. And, and passion is something that can be a great thing. But misdirected or unchecked passion can have awful consequences. Passion is something that drives us, and yet we all know that if we drive on the wrong side of the road or down the wrong road, it can lead to tragedy. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this list a little bit here, or this, this flow chart's not the right word, but process here, because we see passion. If it's unchecked, unchecked passion leads to an unhealthy obsession. Unchecked passion leads to an unhealthy obsession. Let's read verses 4 through 5. Um, as following along in the scripture. Verse four. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Now, we start to see here that there were five rulers of Philistine. There were five uh, main cities, and each one of them together collaborate and say, Delilah, we know Samson is a powerful man. We think his power comes from his physical strength. Can you find out? Can you seduce him? And can you get him to trust you to find out what it is that causes him to be so strong? And so here's something that Doug and BJ talk about here in, the, in their book. They say, Samson has a passion Unfortunately, it was not a passion for serving God or fulfilling God's plan for his life. His obsession was women. Delilah was also passionate. However, neither God nor Samson was the focus of her hunger. Her obsession was the accumulation of personal wealth. And so we start to see from the very beginning, his intentions towards her were, I think she's pretty, and, and fell in love in the way that our culture uses in love, in the sense of it's just this momentary, like, oh my gosh, I love this person, as opposed to, like, what long-lasting, committed, going through the trials, the ups and the downs kind of love. Because the first kind of in love means that you could fall out of love when things get hard if you don't have that committed in Christ love. And so we look here, Samson was after her for her beauty. Delilah was after him to get wealth from the Philistines. And did they have a passionate relationship in the way our culture would define it? Yeah, they did. But was it the way that God wanted it to be? Absolutely not. So if unchecked passion can lead to an unhealthy obsession, then unhealthy obsession, if we go to our next slide, can lead us to idolatry. When we are unhealthily obsessed with pursuing or achieving or receiving something, then it causes us to then place whatever that something is on the throne of our hearts rather than the one who rightfully belongs there, who's God. 
Let's continue on. This is a, a longer section here, and so we're going to start to see um, we're going to start to see how this plays itself out. So, verse six. So Delilah said to Samson, "Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued." Samson answered her, "If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have nev- not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man." Again, this is another example. We don't know this, but uh, in order for them to make bowstrings came from the ligaments of a dead animal. The fact that it wasn't dried out means that he was telling her to put unclean things over his body and to tie him down, which again symbolizes or, or epitomizes how he did not care for his Nazarite vow. He did not care that there were unclean things touching him. It didn't matter to him. He thought his strength was in himself rather than given by God. We continue on. Verse 8. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. You'd think that would be the end of the story. Oh, wow, why did you betray me? Just wait, there's more. Then Delilah, verse 10, said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called to them, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Surely he's learned by now. Delilah then said to Samson, verse 12, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how, can you, how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And verse 17, so he took, or so excuse me, so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaped, my strength would leave me and I'll become as weak as any other man. Okay, so, um, you know, there's that phrase like, fool me once, like, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Samson's like, fool me as many times as you want, I don't care, because he's so enamored with Delilah. And it gets to this point where he realizes that if she's really upset with him, that her displeasure or, or being upset with him is something that is hard for him to take. Now, she was nagging at him, and he was sick of it. And so did he say it out of like, ah, I just want her to stop bothering me? Or was there a moment of like, maybe she's right. Maybe I don't really care about her. Maybe maybe I can open up and share with her. Maybe I can do this. We don't know because as we all know, text and tone sometimes can go hard together. It's hard to know a tone of a conversation just by looking at the text. But here's what Doug and BJ talk about when it comes to an obsession. It says, an obsession can be described as an addiction, compulsion, craving, drive, or dependence. When our mind is so totally driven by our desires, we are not able to submit to God and follow his plan 
for our marriage. It's when we become so obsessed with whatever that one thing is in your life that you pursue, whatever it is in your life that you tend to place on the throne above God. The Bible would call that an idol. Timothy Keller says this, how does he define an idol and counter for gods? He says this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. In another section of that book, Encounter for Gods, he talks about how an idol is anything that you put above God. For some of us, it's, it's financial. Some of us, it's material. Some of us, it's the approval of people. For Samson, it was wanting the, looking for the love of Delilah to see if he would really be loved by her. For Delilah, it was the love of money. It was the fact that she was willing to go after him for 1,100 shekels of silver for each ruler. So 5,500 shekels of silver in order to betray the, the man she supposedly loved. When he's only pursuing her for her looks and for physical pleasure, and she's only pursuing him for material gain, the two are remaining two. They're remaining separate. They are not experiencing what God's vision for marriage would be. So I've shared this before, and um, when Steph and I first started dating, um, we were together for a year and a half, and near, like, I ended up making her my idol in the sense of if she was happy with me, then I, then I felt good about myself, and if, and if she wasn't, then I was like, oh, what's going on? And so when she um, rightfully broke up with me, because I wasn't following the Lord, and I was more the bad company corrupting her good character, and I know you're thinking, how is that possible? Like, it just was, but um, <laughs> I don't have hair to do, it's, it's sorry. Um, I was the bad company corrupting her good character, right? And so she broke up with me, as she should have, because she recognized, hey, if you're not following the Lord, then two would never really be able to become one. And so we end up uh, breaking up, and it was through that moment when I'm like, Lord, I don't, I've made her an idol, and I didn't necessarily have this exact verbiage, but this is what was happening in my heart, was that she had sat on the throne of my heart, and yet when I was like, this is, you know, this is really over, that I knew that, there was a, someone needed to sit on the throne. I didn't want to go back to trying to pursue that with another person. And so I was surrendering my life to Jesus on September 20, 2003, saying, Lord, I, I can't go back to where I was before. I, I give my life to you. And so this, it's a painful process to be rid of our idols. But the painful process is absolutely worth it when you start to put Christ on the throne and it doesn't mean you get everything that you idolize back. In our case, I'm so blessed to say that we were able to come back together and have been married for 17 and a half years. Yes, okay. Um, 17 and a half years. So does that mean you automatically get your idols back or what you pursue? No. But it does mean that no one person or thing or obsession can ever reign on the throne of your life. Because that means it's an idol. It's something that we've placed above God. And maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's an ideology. Maybe it's just a way of viewing the world. Maybe it's the idea of thinking that your way has to be best. Whatever it is, there's something that we place above God. So that when 
that something comes up against God, we have to decide which one's going to take supremacy and precedence in our life. So, unchecked passion can lead to unhealthy obsessions. Unhealthy obsessions can lead to idolatry. Idolatry leads to selfishness. Because then we are willing to do whatever it takes to feel that need fulfilled. If we say an idol is what I look at and say, if I have that, then I have value, then I start to place that over the people around me, over the people that, that I should be caring for, and we start to think, okay, everything is subservient to my idol, including the people around me. So it's my selfishness and my drive. And I, we might use the verbiage passion, but unchecked passion will lead us astray in the same way that going down the wrong side of the road or going down the wrong road will lead us to danger. Let's continue the story, verses 18 through 19. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. This is different. It, it unpacks the story a little bit more. Before, it was just, she said this, then, su- surprise, the Philistines are upon you, and Samson gets out. We start to see the story slow down a bit. We start to see that her confidence in Samson's um, transparency is so strong that she actually tells the rulers to come and says, and bring the money in hand, because we've got this and we've got him. Verse 19, after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then he called, she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. So I jumped a little bit ahead, but that's okay. The strength left him. He'd been honest he had opened up, and again, there's two ways, again, text and tone are hard to determine, right? The tone of this could be Samson was just so sick of being nagged and told that he's like, I don't care if I lose my strength. I don't care if I lose my calling. I don't care what's going to happen. I just need her to stop, and I need her to be okay with me. Or maybe he had this moment where he's like, okay, I do want to maybe love you, and, and I do want to open up. And she took his vulnerability and transparency and did not cherish it and treasure it as something that could bind them closer together. Instead, she used it so that he would be bound and his strength would leave him. I think in this passage or in this story, we can villainize Delilah, which she's not great, but we fail to give the same standards to Samson. Samson should have known his calling. Samson should have known not to defile himself. Samson should have known that his strength was not actually in his hair. His strength was in the power of God because he was set aside for a purpose by God. And so he's thinking, I will just be able to stand up and do what I've always done. But until we realize that our strength is from God and we try to do everything in our own strength, all of us, you, me, all of us will get to a point where trying to live in our own strength will lead us to a dead end. And it either causes us to run right into that dead end and just be laid out and flat and just and nowhere else to go, or 
It causes us to say the same kind of prayer that I said September 20th, 2003, when it says, Lord, I've been going this way and I don't want to go this way anymore. I've reached a dead end. I'm at the end of my rope. I will repent. I will return. I'll make a 180 degree turn and come back to Jesus. All of us have to determine what choice we will make. And so we have this this selfishness that she exhibited, that he exhibited, because he took God's calling for granted and that she broke his trust. And in so doing, his strength left. They're both at fault. It's not a just her problem. He fell woefully short of the calling God had for his life. Here's how Doug and B.J. Jensen continue this topic. She says, or they say, an obsession pulls our focus off selfless thinking, put others' needs above our own, and holds us captive in selfish thinking. When we have an obsession, we are conceding a portion of our life to that obsessive activity rather than being fully devoted to our marriage. It's, it's recognizing that we think, oh, I need to find an escape plan, or, or I need to have a plan B, or whatever it may be. Now, are there biblical reasons to, get, to, to leave a marriage? There are. If there's been adultery, then that's something where God says, yes, that is something that you can step out of a marriage for. If you're unsafe, if there's, if there's abuse, yes, get out of those situations. But if it's just because that in-love feeling ebbs and flows and now I'm in the down part of the in-love feeling, that's not enough. That's not a reason because that's selfish thinking. That's thinking it's about how I feel, what I want, and what this does for me in the marriage. Rather than selfless thinking that says, what does my spouse want? What does my spouse need? And how can I serve? That we are called to have the same attitude of Christ Jesus who put others' needs above his own. That we ought to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others' needs greater than ourselves. We continue on here. Timothy Keller says this, Samson and Delilah are an extreme case of using one another rather than serving one another. They say to each other, I'm with you because I love you. But they mean, I am with you because you are so useful to me. Doubtless, there was a lot of passion and romance here, but it was all done out of motive of self-enhancement rather than self-giving for the growth of the other. Samson was using Delilah to get sexual love and probably the thrill of danger. She was using him to get fortune and fame. It is a pretty obvious taking instead of giving on both sides. So unchecked passion leads to unhealthy obsession. Unhealthy obsession leads to idolatry. Idolatry leads to selfishness, and selfishness leads to broken relationships. When we seek after our own needs so much, yes, in a marriage, but in any relationship— if we seek after our own needs so much that we fail to care for or show love to someone else, the relationship is fractured and it's broken. We close this and we see how, the, how Samson and Delilah's story ends. Again, I jumped, I read 20 a little ahead of time. We'll do it again. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set, up, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. 
And then the verse isn't on here, but verse 22 says, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. That signals how he ends the story in Judges 16, because God eventually uses Samson. He gets to the end of himself, and he braces himself in the palace of the Philistines when everyone is partying, and he uses, God gives him that strength one last time, and he says, let me die with them. And his greatest moment of faithfulness was his final moment of living. Where he pushes the pillars aside, he and all the Philistines that are gathered there that day are killed. So there's a signal where there can still be hope, no matter how far gone we've been, no matter how far our relationship has been from God, no matter how far we have been from God, there's still hope. But maybe for some of you being here today, the fact that, that you're still showing up to church or watching online or, or open to anything that God has to say is a sign that, like Samson, Samson's hair started to grow again, that, that strength started to come back. Maybe being here this morning is, is God is still working because he's trying to call you from strength to strength to come back. But for our main purpose for closing out the sermon, it's recognizing this selfishness by Samson to betray his calling, the selfishness by Delilah in order to pursue wealth, it led to their relationship being broken. And, and there's no biblical evidence for this next statement, so I, this is conjecture. But is it possible that right before his eyes were gouged out, the last thing he saw was the face of the one who betrayed him? Is it possible that he looks to her and, and maybe she thought they were just going to arrest him? Maybe she thought nothing about him and just was smiling at the fact that she was going to get fame and fortune. We don't know. But what we do know is that when Jesus was betrayed, that once the rooster crowed the final time, he looked and he locked eyes with Peter, the one who had denied him. So we have these moments, right, of, of what it's like to know and to feel betrayed. And I'm sure in a room this size with, with the people that are here that you've all, in some sense or another, have felt such a deep sense of betrayal. Maybe from a spouse, maybe from another loved one. And so, if that's you, my encouragement is that recognizing that Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed from those closest to him. He knows what it's like to be in that place. And so you are not alone in it. The Holy Spirit is inside of us when we come to know Jesus, that he can comfort us and be the God of comfort to us. But we see this selfishness that broke apart their relationship. We continue on here. Their obsessions led to a breakdown in communication, and the trust between them was destroyed. Samson tried to restore the relationship by telling the truth about his strength. This delighted Delilah. She used that information to betray him and thus ended their relationship, a relationship that showed the effects of obsessions allowed to run their course. That we ought not be surprised when relationships are broken, when there's unchecked passion that leads to unhealthy obsession, which leads to idolatry, which leads to selfishness. We ought not be surprised that broken relationships are the result. In the same way that if we 
are driving, if, I'm, if we're going to see Phantom of the Opera, I should not be surprised that if the sign says, you're going to reach Las Vegas, I end up in Las Vegas. That ought not be a surprise. Because as much as I might try to say it's the world's largest thermometer, there was a different place that we were going. So we can't be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I ended up where the sign said we were going. And so the question for us is we just have a few minutes remaining is this. How do we avoid the Samson and Delilah fate? How do we avoid being two who remain two? How do we avoid being separated from one another and being separated from God? We look at this chart that we had earlier, that unchecked passion leads to unhealthy obsession, which leads to idolatry, which leads to selfishness, which leads to broken relationships. Timothy Keller points us to how we can maybe change this direction of our lives. Unless you have that relationship with God, the kind that we find our hope in him, even the most passionate I love yous will really mean, I need you to make myself feel as if I am worth something. Samson's inner life and motivations show this lack of God love that should be a warning to us all. Without it, we will, we can only do the same thing in relationships, though not usually so blatantly and spectacularly as Samson and Delilah did. So let's put up a comparison or, or a, a different view. If we know that going down the wrong road will eventually cause danger, what would it look like instead of following unchecked passion to follow God-directed passion? Because again, passion of itself is not bad. It's where are we directing it? As Andy Stanley says in The Principle of the Path, that direction, not intention, determines destination. We can have all the good intentions, but where do we direct ourselves? That's what will be that determines our destination. So if we have God-directed passion, instead of obsession, which is a negative connotation in regards to getting something we need, it's having devotion, being devoted to who God is and who he wants us to become, not besmirching the calling he's put on upon our lives the same way that Samson did. It's saying, God, I want to live the life that you have for me, and I want to be fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ so I can experience the life that you have for me. And if we have that kind of devotion to become more like Jesus, then we will become more like Jesus. We will have Christ-likeness as opposed to idolatry. That whoever is on the throne of our lives is who we will often become more like. So if it's all about having fancy things, we will become someone who values uh, money and worships money and possessions rather than God. And then we'll look at ourselves and we'll have all the things but no one to share it with because we've hurt people on the path. If we think that it's all about getting the approval of other people that sits on the throne, then we will become people that we are so willing to bend in order to make everyone like us that people in the end won't trust us and they won't end up liking us. See, whatever we put on the throne, we become a perverted version of it or a broken down version of it because we get to the end of our road and we either keep going or we make a U-turn. If we make that U-turn, we become God-directed leads us to full devotion. Full devotion leads us to Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness instead of selfishness leads us to selflessness. When he serves and he says, you know that, I, yes, I am your teacher, John 13, and I have served you, so you should serve one another. You are blessed if you do these things. He says, the son of man, it's, it's the idea that, you know, who's more valuable or who does the world say? Is it the one who served or the one being served? And he says, I am among you as one who serves. It's selflessness. Because when we put the needs of others above ourselves, 
we experience not broken relationships, but vibrant ones. Ravi Zacharias has this quotation, and we'll close with this. We see it here clearly. Love is a command, not just a feeling. We think love is a feeling, especially in Valentine's Day, especially when we try to do the big things. Somehow, in the romantic world of music and theater, we have made love to be what it is not. We have so mixed it with beauty and charm and sensuality and contact that we have robbed it of its higher call of cherishing and nurturing. Watch two young people in a passion embrace. It may be love, but it also may be nothing more than passion. Watch two elderly people walking hand in hand with evident concern for each other. And you are closer to seeing love in that relationship than in the youthful embrace. It's seeing men and women who've loved each other through long trials. Even if it's been, you know, that maybe, maybe it's still a younger life, but they've been through it together. And you see a spouse caring for one another in the midst of physical or emotional or, or spiritual sickness or illness or difficulty. And the faithfulness of a spouse loving their spouse when it's hard, when it's rough, when it feels like there isn't hope, that is closer to the kind of love that we are called to live. That is the kind of love that makes it that when two can become one rather than two remaining two. That's the kind of love that shows us the value of becoming more like Christ, of experiencing and receiving that kind of love and then being able to give that kind of love to those around us. It doesn't come from unchecked passion. It comes from God-directed passion. And so for some of you here this morning or joining us online, just acknowledging that this sermon and this series might, might be tough because we're, we're approaching some difficult dynamics in relationships. And so I just want to encourage you that again, you are not alone. Please know that we would love to be able to pray for you and with you. Please know that there are tough lessons, but important lessons for us to learn. And please know that you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. That this is not a, a flippant series that we're just, oh, let's just talk about marriage because, and love because it's easy. No, no, love is not easy. Love is hard. But it's also good. It's also worth the hard things in order to experience the good thing. So instead of Samson and Delilah having two remaining two, let us direct our passions towards God. Because if we go down that road and we U-turn away from our selfishness and our idolatry, then we can experience the Christ-likeness. We can experience selflessness. We can experience the vibrant relationship both with God and with our spouse or with those around us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, and I thank you for the fact that you are with us today, Lord. I recognize again that um, just the different dynamics in this room when it comes to, to marriage or to relationships, to those in the past and present and future, Lord, I pray that you would um, meet us here, God, that if we're in the midst of a marriage that we need to redirect, Lord, would you give us the courage to do that? If we're wanting to be married and there are red flags or things that we're worried about, Holy Spirit, would you reveal that? That we would be able to know the right person to, um, to unite our lives with. 
Maybe we're looking on a past marriage and there's grief of how things didn't go the way we wanted. Lord, may you comfort us in that. Maybe we're looking at someone, a marriage in which we've lost our, uh, our spouse and we are broken. Would you continue to heal and to fill us with your presence and your comfort and your grace? But Lord, ultimately, as we close this time, the prayer is that we will be able to direct the passions that you've given us, not towards fancy holidays and big things like that. Yes, that's part of it, but it's in the day-to-day. It's in the um, everyday, and it's in the dedication to love one another every day that in some future day we could look back on all of our days and praise you as the king of days. Lord, I thank you so much for this time we have together. And I pray that you would meet us here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.